In this episode of 92i Talks, Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Tony Kushner discusses the Broadway play Angels in America and its legacy with Isaac Butler and Dan Coyce, authors of The World Only Spins Forward, an oral history of angels as told by the artists who created it and the audiences forever changed by it. The conversation was recorded on May 4th, 2018 in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. It's incredible. We haven't done anything. Yet. I know. It's incredible. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Uh, thank you, Tony, for joining us on the stage this evening. Um, we're so excited to be here at the 92nd Street Y uh, to talk about Angels in America and Tony Kushner and, secondarily, our book currently available for sale in the lobby, The World Only Spins Forward. <laughs> Um, we're particularly excited to be here uh, on this evening, May 4th, 2018, which is, you may not know, the exact 25th anniversary of opening night of the Broadway production of Millennium Approaches. Uh, that opening night is, of course, uh, you know, a pretty key point in our book. Um, so we thought, let's start there in our conversation with Tony. Um, I was just reading an article that night about that night uh, in, that appeared in the LA Times the next day. It was sort of a, a scene report uh, from that night. And there's this beautiful story uh, of you, Tony, trying to explain to the reporter the, the meaning of Kinahora. Um, <laughs> and then calling to your aid uh, your uncle. Um, wait, Tony Kushner said, the, the, according to the piece, pulling a tuxedo gentleman with a halo of gray hair out of the crowd, my uncle will know. A kinahora, said Richard Manoff, who'd come in from Brooklyn for the long-anticipated opening of his nephew's play. It's a congratulations, but it's a congratulations that you don't want in case you jinx whatever you're congratulating <laughs> someone about. So you say, don't give me any kinahoras. Uh, so that night represented for you, obviously, a, a kind of climax to the story as it appeared to you thus far. What are your memories of that night, and what was that night like? First, I have to get over the fact that they said that my Uncle Dick came from Brooklyn for the... <laughs> because, uh, I don't know if I, this is airing family. Uh, my Aunt Martha, who was... Uh, Dick was married to my mother's sister, Lucy, and my Aunt Martha who was the middle daughter between my mother, who was the youngest. Um, and Dick did not get along at all. And Dick became an enormously successful uh, advertising guy and, and made more money than anybody else in our family and lived on uh, East 57th Street. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> when, when Martha was feeling angry at him, she would say, no matter what he does or how much money he makes, he's never going to be anything but Richie from Brooklyn. So, <laughs> so she clearly said LA that Times to the LA Times reporter. Figured that out. <laughs> he was an ama absolutely amazing uh, guy. <laughs> but what, so what was the question? <laughs> it was, tell me about your Uncle Dick. About, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it was, what was that night? What are your memories of that night? the sort of climax of that part of the story for you, the, the appearance of this play on Broadway, uh, a, an event, I think, the opening I, I night that you... To, so, uh, when, when Martha died, <laughs> we went to, uh, after the funeral, we went to bury her in Mount Hebron Cemetery, and Lucy, her sister, had already died. Dick was still alive. And these two really had a lifelong um, feud, and uh, so we get to the cemetery, and uh, Dick had put uh, Lucy in a grave that had a tombstone that was curved like this, and then there was an, uh, a plot right next to her with a blank tombstone, 
that was curved like this, and that was where Dick was going to go. And Martha was supposed to go next to Lucy on the other side. And we get there, and they've opened the wrong plot. <laughs> so we had to bury, we were like looking at, at this, we had taken the uh, tombstone away, because you don't do that for a year. But, but Lucy's tombstone, I said, that really looks like there's supposed to be another one. But so are we sure that that's the right plot? And we checked, and we weren't. So Martha wound up, it was like a big sort of this. <laughs> so she won in the oh, end. She yeah. won. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right, I'll stop. I'm sorry. Um, uh, I think we could do this all night, honestly. Uh, well, so tell us about that opening night. And <laughs> should we tell me about your mother, Tony? <laughs> Can we get a couch out yeah, of That's here? right. Uh, I, you know, it's just that that moment, I think, was, was interesting in a lot of ways. One is that, of course, you know, your, uh, your agent, Joyce Cate and Margot Lyon, both told us uh, that they believed you spent that show at a Chinese restaurant. Yeah. Not actually in the theater. The I, except for Carolina Change, the musical uh, that I wrote with Janine Tesori, because Janine always makes me go to the opening <laughs> with her unless I can come up with a really... I hate opening nights. I never, ever want to go into that. I mean, it's because it's just, it's terrifying. And nobody's really thinking about the play that they're watching because, uh, you know, everybody's waiting for the reviews. So they're sitting there, and, and everybody feels somehow, because theater people are very superstitious, that if they really love the show, somehow the reviews, which have all been written already and filed, will be better. So, uh, so in the first, like, five minutes of every opening night, the audience has, like, laughed itself into complete exhaustion. <laughs> and when it's Angels in America, that <laughs> means there's a lot of play left <laughs> to go after everybody's sort of fatigued. So I, I really, I come for the party afterwards, but I always, I go, I have my own superstitions, and I, one of them is to go to a Chinese restaurant. I can't remember if it was Millennium or Perestroika where we, we uh, misguessed the time and we stayed too long at the restaurant. <laughs> and I wanted to come and see the curtain call and we were walking down Broadway. We went to Shanli, and we were walking down Broadway towards the theater, and everybody was pouring out of the theater and heading to Roseland, where I think the, the thing was. And we like, absolutely the up. first time anyone had underestimated the running time of Paris right now. <laughs> 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 always surprising. Yeah. You, Always more. You know, one of, one of the people that, that we got to speak to in writing the book was Michael Patchaff, who was your um, assistant, you know, yeah. around that time. And, and he told us this sort of amazing thing that, you know, Millennium Approaches uh, has its Broadway, you know, its Broadway debut. It's getting these, you know, amazing notices. It, it is the play, the talk of the town. And suddenly his, his notebook, you know, for you shifts. It's no longer, you know, do this, do that. It's uh, Matthew Modine's phone number, or you know, uh, Robert Altman's phone number. You know, it was like, just this big shift in your career and what it was like being your assistant. And at the same time, he had rented you this tiny office so that you could finish the rewrites on Perestroika yeah. and finish working on it. And so I was just, I've always been really curious about that summer after it opened where you had done something that people were saying, this is, this is the great work, but it actually wasn't done yet and you still had to, had to complete it. Yeah, that was a that was a really. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about something else. Um, uh, I can tell you some more Aunt Martha stories. Um, she's actually mentioned in uh, in the documentary um, uh, Moon Over Broadway. Uh -huh. um, uh, Carol Burnett 
is in a cab, and uh, they're riding to somewhere, and Carol Burnett, this is on a film, it's in the documentary, she goes, I heard that Tony Kushner's aunt told the cast of Angels in America when Frank Rich was coming, what night Frank Rich was coming, which you're not supposed to do. And, and uh, that, in fact, did happen. <laughs> <laughs> I think told Joe Mantello the night, and then Joe told other people in the cast, so everybody sort of knew that. Was, um, uh, that was the night that Kathy Chalfon told us George Wolfe uh, <laughs> said the exact perfect thing to every person in the cast. Like he told her, just, you know, whatever you're doing tonight, just please be very precise. And she got so pissed off because she said, well, I'm always precise. That's the thing I pride myself on the most. And then she said she went out with her hair on fire and he did that to everyone somehow. He like zeroed in on their weakness. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, um, I'm sure she was very precise that night. <laughs> and Kathy, Kathy is an extraordinary actor and, and always precise. Um, uh, that, the summer was, that was a really hard summer because uh, the play had, you know, um, opened in London and had this enormous uh, sort of amount of uh, acclaim in London and then um, uh, came to the taper and we had done both parts of the taper and that had gone very well, but there was a feeling, especially a feeling on my part, that Perestroika wasn't done yet. And, uh, and I really wanted to work it. So we had devised this whole system of doing Millennium. The weird thing about Angels in America is that um, the first few times that we did it, we've talked about this way back when, it, it felt almost physically impossible to do the play. I mean, it's still an absolutely annihilating experience for, I mean, Marianne Elliott would tell you, but uh, you sort of know now that it can be done, so it's less... Um, um, sort of murderously difficult. The first time that we did it in LA at the tape of both parts, we did all these rehearsals for Millennium Approaches, which is not a short play, and then started previewing Millennium, I think, and at that point we were really deeply into rehearsals for Perestroika, and it just felt like the ceiling had uh, fallen in. So uh, it was a very difficult thing. We decided to do this thing of opening Millennium first and running it for a long time, then taking it off uh, the stage for I think about a month and then rehearsing Perestroika and then putting both back up. And, uh, and that summer I ran around uh, everywhere uh, trying to find a calm place um, and, uh, and never found one uh, to work <laughs> on Perestroika. And I, George, I mean, we, I know we talked about this. We talked about everything. I mean, it's true. It's like, but some of the people in the audience have not had the chance to purchase our book. <laughs> the world only spins, spins forward. forward. <laughs> so for them. I mean, the book is absolutely astonishing. I, I just want to say that. Um, it's, so anyway, we, we, I remember talking to you about this. But, um, uh, at, at one point, um, uh, I... I had finally gotten, I'm a very nervous person and I'm, uh, it takes me a long time sometimes to get started on things and I'm always late with everything. And uh, we had gone into our, our month of work on uh, sort of uh, preparatory, to, you know, um, and I felt like I needed another week that we hadn't scheduled. So George went to the producers and Millennium was, you know, the hottest ticket in town and, and selling out every single night and way in advance. And, and he got them to cancel a week of Broadway performances 
to give me uh, a little bit more time to work. And, and my producers were all really extraordinary, lovely, wonderful, committed people. But when you're directed by George Wolfe, no producer is ever allowed to come within three feet of you, and no one is ever allowed to say anything negative to you. I mean, he's so incredibly protective of writers. So I, I felt this enormous um, amount of support and permission. I mean, in, you know, uh, I rewrote the anti-migratory epistle, the angel's big speech, which is probably the thing I've re well, without any question, the thing of mine that I've rewritten the most I mean, I just did a rewrite on Broadway. It's different than it's international. Uh, um, and uh, I think I, I rewrote it so many times uh, that finally Ellen McLaughlin, who's a very old and dear friend of mine, threw me out of her dressing room. Uh, I mean, literally said, I came in and what preview? I said, well, I've just changed like seven words in this long, incomprehensible thing that you have to say. And could you just do it this way? And this is like the 19th rewrite I had given her. And she looked at me and said, with this kind of strange expression of face, I think you have to leave the room right now. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, I, I will. I just want you to, no, let me just explain. Said, no, no, no. I think you have to leave right now. You have to leave right now. And it was clear that what she meant was, I am only barely restraining myself from physically assaulting you. <laughs> Get out before something really ugly happens. And I said, oh, okay. And I left. When the um, angel of America delivers that message, you yes. definitely you take it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, everybody was uh, in incredibly supportive. And, you know, I mean, Paris Drake will always be a play that I'll... I'll it, but it was hard. It was, it, was, it was really... I gained an enormous amount of weight. Oh, no. Um, just... <laughs> yeah. I did. There's the, I, like, the, that's your memory of that time. It's so, <laughs> more, it's so, like, sad. <laughs> I've seen... I mean, I've been going through my papers in the last couple of months, and uh, I came across a photograph of myself with Kate Clinton, um, uh, the stand-up comic. Um, I think it's like a, about a week after the opening of Perestroika, and it's, I'm shocked at what I, I, I have a vest uh, that was made for the Tony Awards that year that you could, you know, without any extra fabric, upholster several <laughs> sofas. It's terrifying, it's really terrifying, I don't, you know. One of the um, narrative threads that really goes through our book <laughs> is this is a story of, of a very long and fruitful artistic relationship that you've had with Stephen Spinella, right? Who who was in, in that in our book culminates in that Broadway production, you know, a show which he won consecutive Tonys for for a role that he created along with you through years of development of that play. Um, and so I would, we haven't really had a chance to talk with you about this for the book. Can you talk to us a little bit about what makes Stephen the perfect actor for your work? What made it such a joy to develop this character with him and the other characters you've developed with him? And how do you think your writing grew or changed as a result of that collaboration? Um, I met Stephen in graduate school at NYU in 1981. Uh, he was a third-year student, I was a first-year student, and I went to see my uh, directing teacher, Carl Weber, who had worked with Brecht, um, was doing, I think, The Duchess of Malfi or The White Devil, or The Revenge's Tragedy, some Jacobean blood and guts and incest and craziness thing. And uh, it's one of these uh, plays with an absolutely thrilling, uh, over-the-top villain who does some horrible thing to a duchess or something and, and who, who, 
as she goes off to her death, leaves a glove behind. And I, uh, I, they did a workshop production of this thing, and the guy playing the villain was this rail thin, I mean, sort of scarily thin act, actor um, who impressed me in two ways. One was that I'd never heard anybody uh, use text the way that Stephen used it. It was just, there wasn't a word that got by him. Every single thing that he said was filled with meaning and music. It was really astonishing. And, uh, and at one point, he picked up the glove and slipped it down the front of his pants, and it was so creepy. <laughs> and, I thought, and that was, and Carl afterwards said, I didn't tell him to do that. He just did it on his own. That's really interesting. Um, so I think after that, I went up to him and I said, I've never seen anybody like you. And uh, uh, I, I want to write something for you. I want to direct you in something. I was in NYU as a directing student, not a, not a playwriting student. But then when I started writing as a directing student, one of the first things I wrote was for uh, Stephen. And uh, he's, I've written something major for him in, in everything I've written. Um, when the Intelligent Homosexuals Guide opened at the public at the party after the opening, I went up to him and I'd always wanted to say this. I said, you know, your career without me is inconceivable and my career without you is inconceivable. We've sort of made each other. And, uh, and I really feel that way. Um, there was a woman who taught text at NYU named Nora Dunphy. If you see Forrest Gump, uh, she's the old lady sitting next to Tom Hanks on the bench and she's sort of looking at him quizzically as he tells the story. And Nora was this, uh, she and I hated each other at first. I, I directed a, an evening of uh, radical feminist poetry my first year. Uh, and one of the actresses discovered that if you take a tampon and dip it in a glass of water and throw it really hard against a black wall, it makes this amazing sound and sort of explosion pattern. <laughs> so we immediately incorporated that into our show. And Nora's from Dublin. And, uh, and 82 years old, I think, at the time, and was horrified and walked out of the performance and demanded that I be thrown out of NYU <laughs> for, as she put it, having the actresses get up and throw their rags around in public. And uh, so there was a big tribunal held, and I was supposed to be thrown out of NYU. Uh, and I was furious, and I was incredibly rude to her. And, uh, and my, I was allowed to stay, but my punishment um, for the tampon moment was to take Nora's class for a year. And, uh, I couldn't have been more appalled, and she was not happy about it either. She said, well, as long as he doesn't say anything and sits in the back of the room, I don't want to hear from him the whole year. So I went, and uh, the two people that I really feel taught me how to write are my uh, sixth grade uh, teacher, Mrs. Lobdell, who taught me how to diagram sentences, mm -hmm. and, uh, and Nora Dunphy. And what Nora would do is she would sit and, and say uh, to an actor, you know, um, start the sonnet, and they would say, uh, let me, uh, you know, uh, let me not to marriage of true mind, uh, minds admit impediment. And, and she'd say, let you what? <laughs> let me not to the, let you not what? And they repeat, let who? Let me, and just, you would take the uh, like two hours going through like one line, and she just made them repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. And Stephen was her graduate assistant and her protege, and uh, so there's this, just this astonishing, you know, the sort of the difficulty of working in this country 
Um, although actually, actually, now that I've done enough plays in Britain, I realize it can also be a problem over there. But uh, the difficulty, I think, with working with actors in general um, is that... <laughs> let's, uh, let's say one of the difficulties. <laughs> one, of, one, of the, one of the difficulties. There are many great joys, but uh, many actors have, and I think this is maybe more true in America, there's a, there's a kind of a, a relationship to spoken language that it's, a, that it's an obstacle that you have to kind of vault over to get to the emotion that you're trying to express, or that, that it's this kind of like long ramp and you run up it as fast as you can so you can leap and, and hit the target. And uh, the specificity of language and the fact that in most plays, especially in my plays where nobody actually ever does anything, they just sit around and talk all the time, um, that the language is the action, the, that every single word that you're choosing is uh, you know, chosen for a purpose. And it's, uh, I think it is something that can actually be... Um, taught, um, but then there are these actors who, who just are born with it. I mean, the cast uh, right now on Broadway is filled with people who have that ear. Nathan Lane, I'm just, <laughs> you know, it's amazing. It's just, you have to tell them what, I don't know if you tell them what he told Stephen. They're going to go over to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to, uh, we're going to uh, San Francisco tomorrow. We get on a plane to go to San Francisco tomorrow to see Stephen Spinella play Roy Cohn at Berkeley Rep, uh, which is a sort of a fascinating way that this play has come full circle. It's on Broadway, and uh, one of the actors the play was written for is in it again, but now in the, you know, in Roy Cohn, in the way that, like, a, as a Shakespearean actor, you progress from, you know, Hamlet to Claudius. And um, uh, I was talking to Nathan Lane about this, and he said, when you see... Steven. Please do it in your Nathan Lane voice. I, I, my Nathan Lane impression is terrible, but... I, I love it, though. Yeah, it's lovably awful. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, he says, when you see Stephen, please uh, carry a message to him for me. And I said, uh, sure, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, what is it? And he says, it's this. How dare you? <laughs> and then give him my love. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, fine. Um, uh, but you know that you know the 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 <laughs> you know that what, what's interesting about that sort of full circle we've come is of course this this play is arriving 25 years after it was on Broadway. It's it's been in New York a couple of other times at the Signature and at Bam when the the Eva Van Hove production was there, and you know it's it's a very different context from the early days of the Clinton presidency. You know to to be in the in the Trump presidency now, right? It's like there's 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 two big changes. Yes. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize. We uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, we killed Tony Kushner. Good night. No, uh, the uh, but no, but that, that you know we have that. Daryl Roth um, uh, <laughs> came backstage to say hi, and in two seconds I had gotten onto the subject. <laughs> we we and managed as she, to... as she was leaving. She said, "Well, thanks for for uh, cheering me up." And <laughs> we like, managed to save it off for thirty five minutes. But the but the uh, no, I mean, but 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 part of what's interesting to us is how you know one of the things that happens with with these sort of great works of art is the context changes and then the play you discover new things about the play and the way it speaks to that context. So as, I was interested as, as you worked on this play in London and then again at the National as Trump happened and Brexit happened. I think they said their first rehearsal at the National was Trump's inauguration day or the day after. Or yeah, it was but, right you know, after the end. And I was wondering what, what parts of how the play seemed different to you, you know, who knows this play I better than I think my first anyone. big meeting with Marianne Elliott 
in London was uh, I flew over to do a conference on Brecht and the Weimar era. Um, I landed on the night of the Brexit vote and went to uh, sleep with this very gratifying little thing of Nigel Farage saying, oh, you know, it's terrible, the rains have kept everybody, so we're clearly gonna lose. And so I had a very nice night's sleep <laughs> and woke up to my husband calling me up and saying, oh my God. <laughs> and I could hear people screaming in the hall outside and tearing their hair. And, and it, it was, then I went to Oxford for this conference on the Weimar Republic and the death of democracy, it was like, it's a little on the nose. Really on the nose, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the only good moment was I was walking, I'd never been to Oxford before, I was walking around and I passed this little tiny medieval looking building and this, they, they were all doing graduation exercises so this young sort of British guy in a tuxedo was going by and he stopped and looked at the building and he says, that's where he fucked the pig. <laughs> what? And he said, David Cameron. That's the, that's where he did it. That's where he fucked the pig. <laughs> well, it's like I always wanted to see Oxford. But do you think <laughs> now? Do you think he recognized you, or do you think anyone he came up to I outside think, that building, he was, was like, "Oi, come there, out, That's I where. He, I think he did not recognize me. He just felt it was his duty as an <laughs> <Yeah>. Oxonian <laughs> sure. to. Uh, I, you know, what would Evelyn Waugh have done? <laughs> um, so then, and then I, I, I actually left the conference early. I did my shtick, and then I asked the conference, or I said, I'm going into, I feel like I'm going into a massive depression. Um, I really felt frightened. I mean, I thought, you know, I'm, you know, I'm an Ashkenazic Jew, so it's like pretty easy to go into a massive depression. But I, <laughs> I just thought, oh my God, this is, the, this is, this is horrifying. And uh, I mean, this country has just shot itself in the head. This is a nightmare. And, and I said, I can't, I can't listen to another you know, thing about the, the way that democracy died in, in Germany. Hitler came to power, so I said, I, I'm going to leave. And then I went to London and met with Marianne. And then we opened, I think, right after the uh, inauguration. Mm. And, and, but you know, in, in uh, uh, Rehearsing the show, like I, I remember you said something to us about like the anti-migratory epistle, you know, in, in an age when the whole world is breaking apart over immigration and refugee crisis. Like, like that's a part of the play, for example, that feels really different now. Yeah, I mean, I, I went into the rehearsal at the National, the first one that I went to, and they were working on the anti-migratory epistle, and I had literally forgotten. I mean, Marianne and Rufus and the cast and I had been talking about how various things like Roy Cohn and political things and the climate change stuff and all of that felt very, very much, you know, the play was feeling relevant again in a certain way. But it hadn't occurred to me that the epistle is called the anti-migratory epistle and that, that would have a, and then I, the, the, they get up and start talking about it and I thought, oh my, that's, there it is. Um, so it feels, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I would give anything for certain kinds of relevance to not be relevant right now. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's massively um, appalling that, that we have, that we're still suffering under uh, the political, you know, blight of Reaganism and, and listening to, you know, people today, right before I left, because it's one of those days when you get stuck in the news cycle and you just can't get out, 
watching Rudy Giuliani, you know. <laughs> do sort of the, the worm of a robberus through, through his own intestines. And it was like, I mean, I always hated the guy, but he, but, and, uh, and, and, you know, there's somebody on one of the shows was saying, uh, you know, it's just how appalling it is that this man who was represent, who was the mayor of the city of New York, who was a U.S. Uh, attorney, uh, who was actually protected by the FBI in the days after 9-11, that, that, that he called the active FBI agents who went into Michael Cohen's office stormtroopers and how disgusting that is. And, you know, and, and, and then I was listening to that, and I thinking, yeah, but of course, for a huge part of the Trump base and, and uh, the deplorables, but also, you know, a lot of people in Congress, they actually do think that the, they think that the, that the federal government is, is, is already fascist. I mean, and that this, is, this is exactly what Reagan and the Reaganites were leading up to, and that we're still trapped in this, and that we're trapped in it because all these idiots had a nervous breakdown when they woke up one morning 10 years ago and discovered there was an African-American man in the White House. That, that, that has led us to this. It's just, anyway. <laughs> so uh, we hear you're writing a play about Donald Trump. I think I am, although it keeps turning into something uh, different. And, and I keep thinking, no, I can't make it that different. I have, it's now generated two new plays. Um, <laughs> I, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, you know, who cares? I mean, it's like, um, uh, I don't have any idea what this is. None of us has the slightest idea what this is. We are in completely, more than at any point in my entire life, I'm 61 years old, so I'm now actually old-ish, uh, getting there, and uh, I feel very old. Today I feel 161. Um, and and uh, we're, in a, we're in, a, in, a, in a completely unmapped terrain at this point. Um, and and it, it's, I think it's very dangerous for any, uh, for any of us to say this is like that or, you know, I know where we're headed, I know what this is. This is something enormously complicated and enormously new and hideously dangerous. And uh, so I, I don't want to rush to say, you know, I think it, you, you sit shiva for a while, you keep your mouth shut, you, and you listen. And, and I'm still in the process of listening. I've said this before. The, the, one of the first things that I thought about after the election, um, and I always go to this uh, at moments of, of real horror, um, is, uh, and there have been quite a few, um, none as bad as this, but uh, is, is the story about Anna Akhmatova outside of Lubyanka prison um, in whatever it was, 1933, 34, uh, and she's already you know, the greatest poet in Russia, and I think her son and her husband have been arrested um, by the Cheka, and they're in Lubyanka, and it's winter. And she's standing in uh, this line that formed outside the prison from early morning on of these people who were just uh, waiting uh, for any news from inside about someone who'd been arrested and had been taken away. Were they dead? Had they been executed? Were they being sent to Siberia? You know, what was happening to them? And every once in a while, 
the checker would send out a, a um, someone and find somebody in line and bring them in and they would either get to give food to somebody in prison or they would know at least what had happened to them. So there, there was enough reason to hope that you couldn't possibly abandon your loved one and not stay in line, but there was not much reason to hope and most people had been standing in line for months in this terrible cold waiting for this. And it's like one of the most miserable circumstances a human being I think has ever found themselves in. And uh, most of these people waiting were women. And one of the, there was, everybody sort of knew who Akhmatova was. And one of them, uh, this woman comes up to her and says, I hear you're a poet. And Anna Akhmatova says, yes. And she says, can you describe this? And that's when the poem Requiem begins. And that is, in a way, I think, at some points of horror, what poets and playwrights and novelists are meant to do is not to try and analyze something just so, so much as to just describe a moment. And so I think that's kind of what I'm trying to do. I don't know. That's sort of what I'm trying to do. I have a great title for it that I just came up with, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. What? Um, what? No, I can't. I can't. For years, I wanted to write a uh, play, and I thought this was going to be the title. Uh, I wanted to uh, call it Turd Blossom, which was um, Bush's nickname yeah. for Karl Rove. Um, really, it was. Uh, or Pooty Poot. Um, but I, 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 I came up with a better title. But I, I, I'm not going to say anything more about it now. Okay. Um, uh, if, you could, if everyone could, the 90 Seconds Rewatch, please just turn off the recording for a second. <laughs> Even then, I, I, I would be very, I, it would be a mistake to do it. But uh, so we'll see. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> you know, um, one of our, I think, favorite, both of our favorite things that we, that we got to write about in the book was the um, Robert Altman film of, of Angel. That, that never was. I got to go to his archives in, in, at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, yeah. look at his boxes of, of uncompleted right, projects. You found some, like, you found some of the scenes from the... You found the screenplay, scene. yeah. We found this, Your this, screenplay this. that you wrote for Robert Altman. <laughs> yeah. Right. A movie out of Angels <laughs> in America, yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, business stuff about how do we budget for the smoldering pit of hell and, uh, uh, you, know, you know, things like that. And... and um, you know, we, we, we're both big fans of, the, of the, the Mike Nichols film, obviously, but, but we also sort of, one of the reasons why we were so excited about that was just because the idea of you and Robert Altman working together is just like so, ama I mean, it's just such an astounding idea, right? And, and, you know, I know the movie never happened, but you and he spent time working together, and I, I know you cared about each other very deeply, and, and I, I was just wondering about, like, like what you, because you, you later went on to write you know, many, many screenplays. I was wondering what, like, that experience, like, what you learned about filmmaking or writing for film during that, during that time that hmm. you were trying to get that, that movie made with, with Bob Altman. Bob. Um, I don't know if I'm, I, I mean, I had some very interesting experiences <laughs> with him. Um, I mean, I, I was thrilled that he wanted to do it because, uh, as I've said, and I think we talked about this, uh, I think that the idea especially this is true of Perestroika, um, the idea of epic, uh, of, uh, of a specifically American epic, for me, it, uh, comes very much from Altman's Nashville. I mean, I think it was a, there was a, a structure that he discovered in, in, and perfected in Nashville, if you can really say perfected. I mean, it's because in part of it is a kind of um, uh, a crystallization of, uh, and, and, um, a kind of uh, uh, 
I don't want to say ossification, but, but um, uh, a sort of capturing of chaos that somehow resists capture at the same time. Uh, it's, it's, it's an infinite film. It's, it's, it's as vast as Chekhov in its way. Every time you watch Nashville, you see a new movie. It's, it, it, and, and the radical, crazy energy of the way that this thing was generated is so completely um, contained inside it. It's just thrilling. And, and it's a movie that, ha that I revere, and I revere Altman. I mean, I just think his entire body of work is, there's some films that don't work, and, but I think he's Melvillian, and, and there's no adjective that's a higher praise for me. Um, and so I was just completely excited and thrilled, and, I, and he was a wonderful man. I, I adored him. I loved spending time with him. Um, uh, it, it was just... And I got to hang out with him in Paris when he was getting ready to shoot Pret-a-Porter. I got to see rough cuts of short of shortcuts, his film shortcuts, including one uh, that was like five hours long that was really absolutely magnificent. I wish that the entire thing could be, maybe it has been, I don't know. Um, so I'm sure I learned a lot of stuff. Uh, at some point, I think I can say this, um, Warren Beatty called me. We were talking about doing something together. And, and so Warren Beatty called me and he said, how are things going with Bob? And I said, well, uh, they're, they're going. But uh, at that point, it had gotten sort of strange. And, and I kept writing stuff. And then I, he would have new ideas. And we'd write more stuff. And, was, and, and Beatty said, so have you ever made a movie? And I said, no, I've never even been on a film set. I know nothing about making movies. And he said, yeah. So, I bet Bob has told you several times that you're going to actually kind of be responsible for directing this film, essentially. And I said, yeah, he said that. And he said, and you probably think that he's joking because it's Robert Altman. And I said, yeah, I, I do. And, and but he said, he's not joking. <laughs> he said, you, if, if anybody is going to organize this, it's probably going to have to be you, because Bob won't do that. He'll do other things, but he won't. So if you don't think you know how to do that, you might want to think of an exit strategy. <laughs> and uh, I, I started to plan an exit strategy at that point, because I, I thought I had absolutely no idea how to do it. And I'm really glad because uh, of the way that it turned out, and that I got to work with Mike, who taught me everything mm. um, about, I mean, just in terms of starting out as a screenwriter. And right, I mean, that's a very different kind of filmmaker. Very, <laughs> very, very different. I mean, the three, only three filmmakers I've worked with, uh, Robert Altman, <laughs> Mike Nichols, and Steven Spielberg, and it's a, it's a, <laughs> I could write a book um, from like, it's like, Anarchy, uh, uh, high classicism, high romanticism. I mean, it's a, they're, they're all, and you know, so I'm an incredibly lucky person. Um, but I, I loved working with him, and I, I certainly learned a lot about being an artist from hanging out with him, including, I think we talked about this, this uh, I interviewed him on stage at the Guggenheim. Right after Pret-a-Porte came out, he asked me to do an onstage interview where I was uh, asking him questions. And the reviews came out that afternoon. And then uh, so we, I saw him, we hugged, and we went backstage waiting to be introduced. And he looked a little ash, and I said, how are you doing? And he said, well, I'm OK. I spent the whole day crying. And I said, about what? And he said, well, the reviews were really not good. And I thought, oh my god. I mean, he was at that point 71 years old. And he was Robert Altman. And I mean, it was like, what? You really, you care about 
that? I mean, why would you care about that? But he did. It's, and it, that, I don't know what I learned from that exactly, but it's something about vulnerability. I mean, I think that's one of the tricks of being an artist is that you have to stay, you can't get too heavily armored. You can't get too defended or guarded. You can't really incorporate um, uh, sort of a leather hide into your um, our artist self. There ha you have to be available to be hurt in order to create anything. Uh, and, and that leaves you vulnerable. And then there are people who are professionally uh, um, programmed to, uh, to find those places and, you know. <laughs> Jab you. And, and stick the, the knife in. And, uh, and, it, and so you're, you're, you're never as protected as you fantasize you might someday become. It's a, it's a hard thing. Uh, that seems like a suitably, uh, a suitable place to leave it for a conversation that started with uh, your poor dead aunt. <laughs> um, I thank you so much for chatting with us. We now open to the floor. If you have questions uh, for Tony, please come or up to one of the microphones. Or, and, and, or for uh, us about our book, Now for Sale in the Lobby. Um, please come on it's up. It's called The World Only Spins Forward. <laughs> I think we have one here and here. Yep. So we have mics. Oh, now I can oh, no, see are, all of you. Oh my God! Look how many. You can see my parents. I'm, before we start, I'm just going to say one thing about the book. Because um, <laughs> I mean, of course, it's enormously. It's it's really lovely for the. I mean, you you guys have written a history of this of this play, and that's that that means everything to me and Oscar and George and everybody's ever worked on it. I mean, it's a it's an incredibly uh, great gift that you've given us, but. Um, uh, it's occurred to everybody that I know that's read it that it's also uh, it's it's a kind of um, study of a, of a play that isn't very often or that really hasn't been done before. So a young actress that I was talking to uh, recently said that she had sat down and read all the Harper interviews. Um, she's working on a college production of Angels, and and that that she learned so much about acting. From it, there's, that it's that it's also a kind. I think it's a, it's a really sort of an extraordinary. It could be almost, in a certain sense any play, but that it's a it's a in-depth look into the complexities of of creating um, uh, a work of theatrical art, and also a very much a sort of a gathering of a community. I mean, I think that's the one of the most gorgeous things about the book is that it it shows you this this vast assemblage of really disparate people who sort of intersected through this strange arena called Angels in America over the years and how all of us together made this thing happen. And it, that's great because we it's so easy to sort of assign responsibility or credit to this person or that person and then everybody sort of fights over that. Um, like when you said, uh, Stephen created the role of prior, and of course, I always have this twinge of like, the hell he did. <laughs> <laughs> I created Stephen Spinella, and then he. <laughs> but that, that sort of, you know, scarcity economy thing where we think, you know, there's, it's a zero sum game, and this is, don't. But the, the book, in this incredibly beautiful way, um, without any sort of like 
um, forensic pathology spirit uh, uh, suggests that, that, that credit for something like this is due to a vast number of, uh, of people. And that's a, that's a gorgeous thing. So you should, if you haven't bought it, you should buy it because it's, it's, it's a great, and it, if I do say so myself, except for my parts, which I skipped over, so I don't know what I've said. <laughs> it's a great read, it really is. So you did a fantastic Thank you. job. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, okay, let's go here, then here, and then so forth yeah. until the heat death of the universe. Hi, um, I'm actually a high school teacher and I teach Angels okay. in America to seniors in um, our humanities class every year. And Where they love it and it changes their lives. I teach down in Delaware, actually. I came up this afternoon to- Oh my God, thank you. Um, and my students actively asked if I could somehow cram them into my car and bring them with me, but- um, one of the things that we often wrestle with is Joe and where Joe ends in the play. Um, and I was lucky enough to see the production in London and then again in New York with my students in New when we oh, got wonderful. to come to New York. And it was two very different Joes. You're a and good so I, I'm really I'm I would love to after with 10 years of teaching the play now under my belt here, you talk a little bit about, at one point I saw something about you thinking about sort of writing a, a, an additional part that involved Joe, and to just have you talk a little bit about Joe and, and where you leave him, since that's something that students have always been really fascinated with in our reading of books. Yeah, that's uh, probably the single biggest question uh, that I get asked. First of all, thank you for teaching the play for so many years, that's great. Um, and thank you for teaching. Um, did your students walk out on the day of walking out? And they did, yeah. Yay. Uh, I'll start answering that before tossing it to you by yeah. saying that Joe's struggle with that yeah. more than any actor, I think, struggles with anything. So, you know, part of the book is that we talk to a lot of actors who've played yeah. these roles over 25 years. Every Joe to a person has great difficulty with the way that play ends and the position that the play leaves him in and feeling like there is story left to be told. You know, David Marshall Grant, you know, struggled with that a great deal in the course of that play and held fast for many years to the idea that you were going to write that third play, A Good Man is Hard to Find, about Joe trying to find a date. <laughs> I don't think I was ever going to call it that. <laughs> yeah, there's some dispute in our book about what yes, that third that's part would be called, yeah. Godfather Part Three. Yeah. Um, you know the uh, yeah, it's a very cruel thing to do. Um, uh, when I uh, I did an onstage interview with uh, uh, Cherry Jones and Zach Quinto um, after uh, a performance of Glass Menagerie when it was on Broadway, and I was standing watching them. I'd done it the year before with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Linda Eamond and uh, Andrew Garfield and um, Finn Whitrock for Death of a Salesman. And so, and it had been very, very hard uh, for those actors to come out on stage and, and talk after doing Death of a Salesman. So I went back, I went to see, I'd already seen Menagerie, but I went to see it um, uh, uh, right before I got up on stage with them to do this sort of talk audience talk back thing and and I watched it and it was just it really hit home I mean I've written about glass menagerie and thought about it a lot but what a what a 
uh, a brutal thing Tennessee Williams does uh, to the person playing Amanda, uh, and in a certain sense to the person playing Tom, but, but he gets to speak one of the most beautiful speeches ever written at the end, and Laura uh, doesn't get to say anything, but she, although in, in the incredibly great production that Sam Gold did with Sally Field, the greatest production of Street I mean, of Last Magic I've ever seen, just astonishing production. Uh, anyway, Sam did this amazing thing at the end, but, uh, uh, Tennessee says specifically that Amanda sort of shuts up at the end of the play. But these two people, Tom and Amanda, have been building towards this fight that happens in the last, for the whole play, and it finally breaks out into the open in the last like 25 seconds of the play, and he runs out the door, and she's left screaming, you know, go to the moon, you selfish dreamer, which is a pretty great line. <laughs> To end on it, most people get to play Amanda Wingfield don't complain about it, but still, it's, it's like they have to leave every night with all of that, especially the Amanda, with all of that stuff trapped inside. And I, I in working on the Angels this time uh, at the National and on Broadway, I realized, God, poor Joe. I mean, it really, and I think that's why a lot of people ask that question, because every, you know, well, you don't get to see the angel again, and Roy is dead, but you get to see Pryor and Lewis and Belize and Hannah, uh, and you know that Harper has gone off. Marsha Gay Harden said this great thing. She said, you know, poor Harper, she never learns. She spends all this time married to a gay man, and finally gets away from him, and what does she do? She gets on a plane and flies to San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> um, she gets that moment of grace before yeah. the audience, right? It's a, for well, the, she, for the she gets that speech, yeah. which is, I think, probably the best single thing I ever wrote. It's really a good speech. And then, and then the epilogue, and Joe, you don't get to see. And I didn't realize that it would bother people as much, and I think that's probably the reason that it does. I just, you know, Joe has to, um, I've rewritten Joe more than I think, except for the anti-migratory epistle. Uh, when I did the production at the Signature in 2010 with this extraordinary cast and this wonderful actor, Bill Heck, uh, who played Joe there, I, I did an enormous amount of work on the character for, for that production. And I think I could probably do yet another Joe rewrite a little bit down the road. Hopefully, I'll die before I have a chance to do that. <laughs> enough already, but... Um, uh, I mean, one thing that I've really become interested in is, is that why is Joe not Roy Cohn? I mean, that's really, in a way, I think one of the main questions that the play is asking. This never occurred to me until this go-round. And I think probably talking to Lee Pace, who's just a sublime actor um, and, and is magnificent. Uh, and uh, um, I think that's an important question, and, and the, but what you're watching, and what I really feel that I succeeded in doing that, that, that you can see on stage that I feel is, is somebody who really would become an absolutely horrendous person, an unforgivable person who's actually done unforgivable things, the court cases, the decisions that he's written for this judge. Um, you see him actually, I think, plausibly beginning to move in little tiny broken baby steps out of uh, conservatism into something less thought disordered. Um, well, it is. I mean, 
I think Hannah Arendt was here uh, many, several times, many years ago. She would agree, read Eichmann in Jerusalem. I mean, it is a thought disorder. It's, you, you think as far as you believe uh, your thinking process will not dis, you know, uh, do any damage to your ideological precepts. As soon as you begin to feel like, or your self-interest, and as soon as you begin to feel that it's going to actually force you into a, a confrontation with reality, that will challenge what you assume, uh, you stop. And you do that over and over for your entire early adult life, and you're going to wind up with a thought disorder that will often manifest itself, as we've seen in the last two Republican presidents, as a speech disorder, so, <laughs> which is how thought disorders often manifest themselves. So also helps explain why there are so few good conservative writers. There are a couple, but few. Um, uh, and the conservative part of their writing is always the worst. I mean, Saul Bellow was a very great writer, but even in Augie March, that stuff about the... Anyway, it's, <laughs> it was not him at his best when he got on that. And Ravelstein, you know... Tell your students that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, art is about trying to find some kind of dialectically activated truth dialectically alive truth. If you're lying as an artist and you know you're lying, uh, it's not going to work. It can work in other fields, it, not science, but in other fields. Really, it won't work in any field, but uh, I, I guess except Wall Street, um, uh, uh, where it is a positive advantage, apparently. Um, uh, but the, that, that's a, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a it's a problem. So uh, I you think feel that, that Joe makes it starts by the end of the play to make his way past yes, that uh, thought yeah, disorder. Thank you. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yes, and I think and I think that takes a long time, and I think it's very hard. And there, I didn't, I don't want to assume that Joe will actually make the entire journey. I think it's a very difficult thing uh, uh, that he does. He he, as we would say now, you know, gives up. Uh, starts to give up a certain kind of privileged position. Um, and starts to insert himself into the world in a way that he's actually hasn't been aware that he's been doing, but he's pr protected himself from being, and uh, integrating himself into the world. Um, he's not going to split, as object relations therapists, I think, would say. So it's a, I think that that's a hard thing, and, and you watch it, and then you have to, you know, he'll, he'll, you know, I have great sympathy for him, I wish I had been a little nicer to him. Mike made me uh, go back and find a scene that I told him I had written where Joe and Hannah have a little reunion because Mike found it just unbearably <laughs> cruel. Um, I feel that I'm really in terribly hard on Lewis. I just cringe uh, at the end of Perestroika when Belize makes that joke. He says, Lewis, you certainly know how to clear a room. And the audience laughs, <laughs> and, which is what they're supposed to do. It's a joke. But the actor playing Lewis dies a little <laughs> because the audience, you know, is sitting there just. Um, but again, I mean, I, I, and maybe it's a flaw in the play. I don't know. I think that what Lewis does is incredibly heroic. I think it's, he's, he's not somebody you really want to date, but he's, uh, but he's somebody who has a, an enormous amount of emotional courage and a tr terrifying, maybe more than anyone else in the play, a degree of honesty that I think is, is unmatched and, and, and is harder on himself than anybody else. And, and 
But I still couldn't completely forgive him for what he did. And I found it necessary, even in the epilogue, to, because I'm not a very nice person. But anyway. <laughs> um, Let's go here. Thank you. Drive safe when you go home or take the train. <laughs> Hi. Uh, first, thank you for a, an amazing work that's profoundly affected me. I, I first saw it in, in 93. At that point, I had been living with AIDS for 11 years. Oh and it was, it was tough. It was tough to watch. It was tough to watch Steven Spinella, who I worked with in ACT UP, you know, bleeding on the floor in front of me. And because that was the fear of all of us back then. And it was extremely tough to watch what Lewis did. Uh, to Pryor. I, uh, I can't tell you how devastated I was uh, and how much I hated him and how much I hated you for... <laughs> I, I mean, I almost had to leave at the intermission. I was so upset. It made it, it, made it really difficult to even watch the rest of the play because, yeah. because it, it, I just wanted to walk up on stage, literally, and, and strangle him. And so tell me why I shouldn't hate Lewis and why I shouldn't hate you. Okay, explain <laughs> that to me. Yeah, you, maybe you should hate me. I can't really uh, say, uh, but I can defend Lewis. Um, <laughs> you know, I, it was a very scary thing to write that um, because, uh, uh, it, it, you know, there's a way in which, especially when you're writing about a, uh, um, a very sort of pol politically charged, emotionally charged subject, as the epidemic was in the years when I started working on Angels. Um, uh, it's hard to keep things from being seen as representative in some way. And uh, so my fear was that people would take Lewis as being representative of the gay community, which, of course, it's, it, there were instances, I know of a couple, but um, very few where people abandoned other people who were uh, sick. Um, but it's not, it's a play, it's not propaganda. It's not, a, it's not um, it, and I don't use propaganda pejoratively, it's just it's not a public service announcement. It's not, a, it's not an exhortation to people to, uh, or a prescription about how people should behave. Um, one of the things that I was really fascinated by and moved by and intrigued by that um, made me uh, want to write the play in the first place was that, uh, you know, um, a lot of young men, men are not culturally conditioned usually to be caretakers of catastrophically ill people. Young people in general have a hard time figuring out how to do it. But women have uh, a sort of an acculturation process from early on that I think maybe makes it uh, somewhat more um, egocentric to suddenly be given uh, responsibility for another person's well-being. Well, and, and absolutely. Um, and uh, um, young men very often struggle terribly uh, with um, uh, 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 a confrontation with with the weakness, with body's debilities and with mortality and so on, and, uh, and it was also a moment when the Reaganites were telling everybody 
that selfishness was a great virtue and that severing all communal connections was you know, the right thing to do and that the whole of our community would do better if everybody watched out for themselves and didn't give a shit about anybody else. Uh, I mean, quite literally, Ayn Rand, it was sort of the heyday. Well, she always keeps popping back up like bathroom mold you can't get rid of. Um, uh, so I thought, you know, this is a, an inter interesting thing. And I, I didn't know a lot of people who left, but I knew a lot of people, I wouldn't say majority, but a lot of people who uh, were very angry at being in a caretaking position, who really weren't doing a very good job of it, who were struggling with it terribly. And I felt, I sensed uh, underneath uh, their courage and their determination to stick it out, um, uh, a great deal of anger and a desire, an understandable desire to flee. And I started thinking, what would happen if I wrote a character that, that actually did it? I mean, that broke that connection. Um, uh, and that's where Lewis came from, was uh, somebody, um, this wonderful thing that Brecht says about uh, George Bernard Shaw's Man and Superman and about the figure of Don Juan who uh, Jack Tanner in A Man and Superman is based on. He says that the Shaw figures out who Don Giovanni really is. He's the man who dares to be the enemy of God. And that's a very strange and interesting idea. And uh, um, uh, so, you know, I think that that's, that's where he came from. Lewis comes back at the end. He, he works it out. He figures it out. But I think the one thing that's hard to maybe see in the play, and this may be a place where my writing doesn't serve the play as well as it should, I don't know. Um, it's also something that I've only really figured out about the play recently, is that uh, Lewis doesn't want to be a person who stays but doesn't stay. That's intolerable to him. So whatever he feels is true about himself, he has to sort of act out. and. Uh, and so I think that that's, that's the, the journey that you watch him take. It doesn't take him very long to realize he's made a horrible mistake. Before the end of the first play, he starts to try and find his way to a path back to Pryor. So well, I don't know if that you, Thank answers. you for having Pryor not taken back. That was important <laughs> to me. Really Oscar Eustace told us in the book you know, that, the, that the journey of you writing the play to him was you getting from the place of making that decision to have Lewis leave to the place where you could write the thing he says to Pryor when he comes back. That you could not end the play until you figured out what it was that he could say upon that return. Yeah, I think that that's really true. I've always loved the story that Chekhov, when he was writing The End of the Cherry Orchard, and he wrote the absolutely the saddest scene ever written, which is when Lepakin, is it Varia? I can always get confused. It's Varia, right? The, Let's say so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when Lepakin, the liberated serf, has just bought the cherry orchard, and you've spent the whole play watching this young woman who wants to marry him, and she's destitute, and she's going to be thrown out. And... Uh, is it who? Somebody knows the answer. Oh well. Anyway, shame on us all. But uh, um, and and you think he's going to propose to her finally, and he almost does, and then doesn't. And then supposedly, when Chekhov got to that scene, he wrote the scene and had Lepakin propose at the end of the scene, and then went out and got drunk for two days, 
came back and in two seconds rewrote the scene where they don't. And then that was, you know, and it is, of course, it's, you know, this. Did you have a different draft where Pryor took him back? <laughs> no, I, I, I kind of always knew that Pryor would not allow him to, to come back in the way that the, the, but what's important is also, and it's easy again to miss this, I think, but Lewis is asking to be taken back, but not to be taken care of. He's come a very big distance from where he is in Millennium. And, uh, and what you see in the epilogue is that even though he's not taken back as Pryor's husband lover, He's, he sticks, he's five years later, he's there with, with Pryor. And he's welcomed as part of that circle. Right. And, and he yeah. himself is, has attached himself to the, that circle. It's a, it's a, you know. So. Let's go over here. Thank you for saying that. that I'm very and, moved by what you said. And just to say, I do now have an HIV negative boyfriend for 16 years who hasn't left. So it, it does, it gets better. <laughs> Hi. 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 Um, so in my experience doing oral history, there's always a lot of things that I, or a lot of little snippets that I absolutely love and that I want people to read or hear, but that just don't end up able to make it into the final piece of whatever mm -hmm. I'm constructing. Um, and you've written this book that's like exhaustive and has so much in it, but I'm curious what the process of whittling down those things that you love was like for you. And if there's anything that sticks in your mind is like, oh, I wish it had made it in there. We had a whole Google doc that was shit we have to find a place for somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, we use everything in it except for one line, which was uh, Tony Taccone talking about how when you would cut stuff and be upset about having to cut it, he would tell you about some famous writer who had a... Uh, it was Buster Keaton. It was Buster Keaton, had a sign up in his dressing room that said, you can use it in the next show. <laughs> and so, you know, that was, that was helpful for, for us. For us you as know. well, yeah. We had to go through two cutting processes because this was first an article, and our draft of that article was <laughs> 40,000 words long. <laughs> and we had to, we had to cut it. Uh, we had to cut it to 15 to 17,000 words long. And the whole time we were like, we're, we're definitely going to do a book. We're definitely going to do a book. And that was the only way we could sort of make those cuts. Um, the truth of the matter is I, I, I feel like, um, you know, when you're working on something, it has its own needs and your job is to fulfill the needs of the thing that you are creating and it is actually separate and beyond you. And that's always, when you have a collaborator, actually that becomes very clear because you have to have something that's not the two of just your individual taste, right? And so um, keeping that in mind, I think, made it a lot easier for both of us. And so what would happen is one of us would draft a chapter, and the other one would go through and red pen it, and then send it back, and then we'd red pen it again, then we got enough chapters together that it felt like we had part of the story together. We would just trim it more, and just we were just always, we wanted it to feel like you never wanted to stop reading it because there was always something exciting happening. And any time we started to feel a little bored, you know, we'd cut it or move it or insert something, something new. So it was a pretty intuitive um, uh, process, actually, that way. Uh, that's incorrect. Everything I cut was correct to cut, and everything Isaac cut of mine was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> There's also that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you. Hello. Um, I... I've seen the show at Signature. I've read it a number of times. Uh, I'm always fascinated by the, the story arc of Roy Cohn. Uh, he is obviously 
for many who've seen the show, uh, who've read it, is a despicable character. Um, he does a lot of despicable things, but you you tend, or he is humanized by the way that he, um, at least I believe, the way that he deals with his the disease that he has. Um, but for me, it's very hard to sympathize with him throughout the show. But one of the ways that I was able to uh, sympathize with him is at the very end when he dies and Lewis says the mourner's cottage for him. And I was wondering, um, you know, it, it doesn't seem very often in the show that he lives um, uh, observant Jewish life. Uh, but in his death, like this ritual happens and it is important for his um, redemption, but also it seems to be also a transition of Lewis's character in the show. So I was wondering, um, why did you write that? Uh, why did you write that scene in which um, you know, Roy Cohn's transition into, you know, from life to death, why was it important to have the Mortar's Kaddish and Lewis say it over his body? That's a great question. Because um, I think it's also, uh, I mean, even though she's a ghost, it's a, it's a big turning point for Ethel. Um, uh, I mean, there are a couple of answers for that. Uh, the, you know, I didn't, in, I, I knew sort of from the beginning that I was going to call it a gay fantasia on national themes and that it was going to be Angels in America. It was my second play and it was for this theater company in San Francisco, so it was sort of a theatrical coming out. It was written, I was really just out of the closet when I started working on it in my late 20s. Um, so I thought of it as being a gay play and an American play. Um, I didn't really intend for it to be a Jewish play. I'm very proud of my Jewish identity, uh, but that wasn't one of the things that I decided to work on. Um, but it turned into that uh, in a way. I mean, it's not, you know, I think exclusive, uh, exclusively that by any means. But uh, um, I was sort of surprised as I kept working on it how, and I shouldn't have been really, but how, um, I mean, my first play was uh, Bright Room Called Day is set in the Weimar, end of the Weimar Republic, the beginning of, uh, of the Reich. And I actually decided that I wanted to write that without any Jewish characters in it um, uh, because I wanted to deal with uh, a specific sort of political set of circumstances that would lead to the Holocaust. And I uh, felt that it would be interesting to approach that moment that means so much in Jewish history. Um, without any specific Jewish characters. Um, and Angels, uh, you know, I think that I became interested in Roy Cohn when I was 10 years old, uh, and I read my first book about the McCarthy era, the uh, Fred Cook's Nightmare Decade, um, and I was fascinated by this guy because I, Cook sort of lets you know that he was gay, and uh, without saying it, because Roy would have sued him. And, uh, you and read that was, at 10? Yeah. <laughs> all right. It's then. not that. It's not really all that hard a book. Uh, but I wanted to know. My father gave it to me. That was. A, he, I, I wanted to know what the McCarthy era was, and he said, "Here, this is a good book." And so I read it. And uh, it, I. So he was. The fact that he was Jewish, I think that, and that he was always a part of the play, meant that it was going to be. I mean that there was going to be something very Jewish at the heart of the play. Um, and, uh, I, you know, there's a, there, the, the, 
what I said to the gentleman before you about uh, this line of Brecht's about uh, Shaw's um, use of the Don Juan character, the man who dares to be the enemy of God. There's a, there's a quality of arguing with God, um, a tradition in a way of arguing with, I mean, there are a lot of rabbis who will tell me that I'm completely full of shit and I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, some of them have literally said that. Uh, but, uh, but I believe that the Talmud, the, the Talmudic tradition in a way, um, is a tradition of, uh, of, of argumentation among interpreters of the, of the scripture that are also, in a certain sense, arguing with God. And the greatest book in the Holy Scriptures, in my opinion, the book of Job, Abraham Lincoln agrees with me. I think on this stage, I saw Isaac Bashevis Singer, the first time I was ever here, say it was the greatest book, so I can speak with great authority. Um, and, and Job is, in a certain sense, this poor man sitting in a dung heap saying, what the fuck is the matter with you? Why would you do this to me? You know, why do, why do you allow this terrible stuff to happen to good people? And God says, can you make a hippopotamus? <laughs> if you can't, then shut up. <laughs> that's sort of the end, that's the end of it. And then he gives Job some nice consolation prizes. But, um, you know, I think that, that, that tradition of argument uh, that I think is very much at the heart of the play, because I was feeling as many of us were, most of us were, you know, very angry at God at that, at that time. Um, uh, so I felt that that was, you know, sort of something that was uh, at the heart of what Lewis was struggling with, at the heart of um, what Ethel is struggling with, the trying, you know, I came, she says right before he dies, I came to see if I, you know, could I forgive you, you who I've hated so terribly, you know, et cetera. And she almost does it, and then he pulls this terrible last trick on her, and she's sitting there stewing in that. And she decides to, you know, to help Lewis with the Kaddish. And I, I feel like it's a moment of a very powerful sort of Jewish form of, of forgiveness, uh, and, uh, um, which I think is the, the great dramatic and maybe the great human problem, is how do you, how do you acknowledge the past? How do you remember the past? Um, and hello, and, uh, and, and move on into the future without being trapped by the memories of the past. Um, a great queen can forgive her vanquished foe. And, yeah. Which is Belize's thing. But you know, and, and, and Belize is this person of immense uh, uh, moral strength and grace. Um, and uh, I think that Lewis begins to discover that in himself. But it's still very hard. I mean, the, you know, the great play about forgiveness is the humanities, is the end of the whole cycle of violence, the whole House of Adrian cycle. And the way that they all get out of it at the end is they bribe these, these furies by building them a temple. And they'll go to sleep at the base of the temple, and then they can sneak off. While, you know, Orestes can sort of sneak away while they're, they're happy with their temple. And it's not exactly. And there's something extraordinary about that. It's really like there's a, there's a kind of a, almost a shrug. It's like there is no, there's no solution to, to, this, to this problem. And it's where uh, iterations like this thing, I think it's in Yad Vashem that I first read it. Uh, I think it's Menachem Mendel of Kotzke's, nothing is whole as a broken Jewish heart. I mean, the... the and the, the epigraph that I used for Millennium Approaches, in a murderous time, the heart breaks, the Stanley Kunitz line, in a murderous time, the heart breaks and breaks and lives by breaking. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, an, 
it's a it's a it's what I was saying earlier. It's a dialectically alive truth. There's no way to ever stop the spin of it. Um, but to arrive at that place, if you can get there, I think is an immense value. Because um, if you know the steps that you took to get there, you can revisit it periodically and stare at it until maybe at some point you'll be part of a of a vast human accretion of knowledge that it will allow us to move to the next step. But it's something that we struggle with uh, endlessly. We'll be struggling with it now about this current administration in the way that we were during the first years of the Obama administration about what to do about the war criminals in, you know, in W's administration. And uh, I believe in Obama's solution to that. Um, but it was very humanities-like. <laughs> it was like, let them have their thing, and let's move forward. Let's not get trapped. And, and it's hard. So I think, does, I don't know, does that answer your question? Or, <laughs> I yeah, know. I appreciate that. Thank okay. you. From our, from our broken hearts to yours, Tony, thank you. Thank you All so right. much. Um, thank you. We're sorry we don't have time for more questions. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for coming. But the... Uh, Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.